Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. We invite you to open your Bible to the book of Galatians. This morning we're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, all the way through verse 10. So here Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess now our great need for what your word has to teach us and also our great need for you yourself to be the teacher. It's not just our biological brains that need to be taught as if all we needed was an intellectual download. We need our very hearts to be taught by God. And so I ask now, with all my heart, on behalf of your people and everyone else here assembled, uh, that you would meet us and that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might see the glory of Christ and the gospel of grace and be all the more rooted in the truth that saves sinners. We ask this for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. So in the Odyssey, I believe it's in the Odyssey anyway, and not the Iliad, it's written by Homer. Uh, There's a tale 
about a Trojan horse? Iliad? Okay. I'll Google check you later. At any rate, Troy uh, had this wall, this really big, awesome wall, supposedly impervious to enemy invasion, which was a theory that was eventually put to the test when a Trojan prince stole away the bride of a certain Greek king so that the entire Grecian army, soon enough, arrived at the foot of that Trojan wall. But the wall stood. Uh, The opposition was kept out initially, and the people of Troy were safe for a time. But so a Grecian king then came upon the future adage, if you can't beat them, suppose to join them. Utilizing a god that they shared in common, they built a horse on Trojan shores as a prayer for safe travels home. And if you've seen the theatrical version of this, uh, you know what happens next. It's really instructive. The Trojan king, generally a wise king, is yet really religiously gullible. And as such, his sons urge him to see the dangers of that gullibility, and they advise him to burn the horse. Burn the horse. However, being gullible, he listens instead to his religious or to his priestly advisors. They convince him to see the horse as this token of victory, as a relic to welcome into the city, as a gift to their gods. And so the gates are opened, and the horse is wheeled inside. But, if you know the story... What was then thought to be safe was filled with enemy soldiers who, spilling out at night, opened up the gates to the city for the Grecian army to come in and burn Troy to the ground. So, forsaking spiritual discernment for spiritual ignorance, Troy let her guard down, her wall was breached, and while they were slumbering, she became a ruin. Are you and I awake enough to spot and dispatch of Satan's Trojan horses? Do we know the gospel intimately enough to guard it against enemy incursions and destructive counterfeits? One of the things that Paul's really going to try to press home with us this morning is that a church should have walls that keep her people safe and thriving. But as that's the case, we need to ask the question, whose responsibility is it to man those walls? Who's responsible to see nothing gets in, or if it gets in, stays in, that has this invasive potential to ruin a people of Christ? I'm afraid many Christians don't know the answer to that. So that a great many churches are like cities that are just wide open to this kind of attack. So unwisely welcoming, they're like to welcome their own ruin and fall. What I want to say this morning is that church, it is on you. It is on you to safeguard the one gospel for us. 
Let's come to our text and see it there. The first thing we want to see in verses 6 and 7 are the reproofs in Paul's astonishment. The reproofs in Paul's astonishment. Maybe it's just me, but I can't imagine that Paul was easy to astonish. He was, after all, a very accomplished man in his former life. He was surpassing all peers in his merit. From the onset of grace in his life, he'd seen himself converted. He's later going to talk about himself as the chief of sinners. That had to be an astonishing thing to see Paul converted. He'd seen that. He'd seen a demon-possessed girl following him around on one of his missionary tours, converted. (laughs) A man who, I feel with him here, a man who fell asleep while Paul was preaching. It fell out the window because it was late and Paul had been preaching really long, as some of you can identify. He falls out and he dies. And Paul raises him from the dead. Paul was a man, you remember from a week ago, who had seen the crucified Jesus, the buried Jesus, risen. He saw him in his risen glory. So, my bet is, Paul was difficult to astonish. At the very point that he writes, verse 6, I am astonished. What could do that? How about churches that he had likely planted only a year earlier, not even a year earlier, already beginning to drift away from the one gospel that they had received? It's not that they were having so many trials in application. You can go read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and you'll find trials in application of the gospel. It's that on account of their spiritual gullibility, they were so quickly welcoming, as you see in verse 6, a message that stood in direct contradiction or opposition to the one message that Jesus had given to Paul to preach. So a people that the gospel created were turning within a calendar year to no gospel at all. Believers are prone to wander. Don't we feel it? Prone to leave the God we love. Paul's not astonished because he thinks that these folks are illegitimate. He does not think that they're inauthentic inauthentic disciples. That's not the route that he takes here. He doesn't brush it off or excuse it away that way. Well, they're just not real Christians. No, he's astonished because he's at least persuaded these are real churches who have let down their guard, welcomed in a Trojan horse, and put themselves in grave danger. So beloved, listen. There is never a time for you and me in this world that we can afford to be so careless with our souls. Or come to think that we're above the need for each other's help in clinging, in holding fast to our Savior and to the one true gospel. So, hear what Paul says to these churches who were being careless like that. He says, still in verse 6, 
insofar as you drift away from the gospel, you drift away from God. You see that? You do that. You drift away from the gospel. You're not just deserting an idea. You're not just deserting some words on a page. You're not just deserting a set of propositions. Paul says they are deserting Him. They're deserting a person, an infinite and eternal being. They are deserting the living God in deserting the gospel. God and His gospel are inseparable. And so, friend, you need to hear this. God has supremely revealed Himself in His gospel. So that, to turn from that gospel, is to turn from Him. You cannot alter the one gospel of God's all-sufficient grace in the Lord Jesus Christ without forsaking God. So churches that are sporting prosperity gospels and therapeutic gospels and merit-based gospels and ear-tickling gospels and love-equals-God kinds of gospels, pseudo-gospels are God-deserting wastelands. They're forsaking Him who promised Christ's churches. I will never leave nor forsake you. And as these churches are on the brink of that, Paul presses further on their affections. In embracing the lie, God's grace in Christ needs your additions. You are leaving the divine embrace of grace. You're not just deserting a God bless America God. You're deserting Him who called you. Who called you in the grace of Christ. Though you're the prodigal, right? Galatians, Gentiles. You're the prodigal. You're the ones who are in the pigsties. Though you're the prodigal, you're actually now beginning to act like the older brother who cannot stand the father's undeserved embrace. Beloved, the call to which Paul is referring here is not the call that's synonymous with universal invitation everybody's called. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to the call that did not get interrupted. He's referring to the call that made it through from heaven to heart. He's referring to the call that worked effectively upon your soul. It's God's call through the preaching of the gospel in the grace of Christ that resulted in something. That resulted in your conversion. Your salvation. That's what he's referring to here. It's that call for which the grace of Christ made full payment for you. And per usual with Paul, there's some logic in uh, verse 6 that's really useful. He's going to show us this later on in chapter 3. But the idea here is that the Christian life goes on, it continues on, and it grows just as it began. As your life as a Christian began, 
by the grace of Christ, without any consideration whatsoever of your works, must those works now be added in order to be really a Christian? They've forgotten how they started out. Have they been converted by accepting certain rituals? Have they been converted by performing certain rites? Had they been born again by being circumcised in the flesh? Had they come to know Jesus by doing the law of Moses or converting to Judaism? Had peace with God flooded their guilty consciences because they first cleaned themselves up and then came? Is that what happened? At the beginning? Did God call them as His own in the merit of their own lives. Never. Romans 9, verse 11, God's call and our works are mutually exclusive. I was not in a state of euphoric obedience to God when I was born again. And you weren't either. Dear ones, you were called while you were yet ungodly. He called you while you were still in bonds to your sins. He called you when you had no ear to hear Him. He gave you that ear. He called you as He called Paul. And how did He call Paul? He called Paul while Paul was literally walking in rebellion against God. That's how he called you. You love God only because God first loved you while you were hating Him. In our utter demerits then, God called us, not in the merit of our own lives. What does it say in the passage? God called us in the grace of Christ. So, the additions and alterations they were now adopting had no part in God's call upon their hearts, no part in their union to Christ, no part in their conversion, no part in their adoption into the family of God, no part in their justification. We're about to have two chapters on that. No part in their sanctification as the back half of the letter. Okay? It all comes, it all comes by the love of Christ's self giving labors for you and me by grace. And as that's so, if I can quote a hymn here, come. Ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty. Glorify true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Let not 
conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness He requires is to feel your need of Him. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of His blood. Venture on Him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude like a Trojan horse. Well, that's your gospel. I've taken on another gospel. Friends, there is no other gospel. It's possible these folks were promoting their message by merger. Yes, believe in Jesus, do that. But also, let's strap on Moses. And you will then have a super gospel. Can you imagine Moses and Jesus together? Super gospel that puts the gospel of sheer grace to shame. But probably, they were equally clear as the Apostle Paul. Our gospel of grace plus works for justification is a different gospel. It is God's gospel for you. That's what they're saying. But in the event there was any abiding confusion on Paul's part, he leaves no doubt. In repenting, turning away, of the sufficiency of faith in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, you are turning to a different gospel that is no gospel at all. To deny Christ's sufficiency is to deny the all-sufficient Christ. It's to deny, as a week ago, that He's been raised from the dead by God. It's to say, as a matter of fact, He's still in the tomb. He never came out. And He just died there. Because He did not prove a sufficient Savior. He didn't achieve salvation. If He did not do all of it, He did absolutely none of it. And that's why Paul can't be more serious throughout these verses. There is one true saving gospel of God. And as soon as you begin to merge its grace with your works, you have begun to distort that gospel. You have moved from God's gospel man's gospel. You've come upon one of Satan's Trojan horses. But now who then bears chief responsibility for keeping it or getting it out of the church? Answer? The church Amen. The church. When Paul says you, in verse 6 and throughout the passage, it's a plural you. He's not addressing a synod. He's not addressing a, a presbytery. He's not addressing the pastors of the churches. He's addressing the addressees of the letter. 
which is the churches of Galatia. And this is where something like congregationalism comes from. It comes from texts like this, where Paul holds us, the membership of this church, responsible for knowing the true gospel in order to preach it, to safeguard it, to defend it against all counterfeits, and to do that to our dying breath as if it were a matter of eternal consequence, because it is. So do you know the gospel that well? Are you meeting that biblical responsibility as an individual Christian and as a church? Yeah, I would argue from this, as I think Paul clearly assumes, for what's called regenerate church membership. I think that's why it's so important that the church is actually, as best as we can do it, a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, believers in the gospel. Again, his assumption here is that everyone that's in these churches has been effectually called by the grace of Jesus. And by that reality alone then, there's a surety that they're going to turn back fully to the gospel that saved them at the beginning. And to be absolutely clear with it, that is their responsibility here. And it's our responsibility as well today. We bear a responsibility from God to safeguard the gospel of God's all-sufficient grace in Jesus Christ from any and all troublemakers. To that end, we come to Paul's rules for gospel allegiance. Picking up in verse 8. The underlying, all-critical idea is that the one gospel never changes. The one gospel never changes. What, verse 9, they received at first is not subject to any improvements or to any alterations, no matter who or what sort of being says otherwise. The allegiance of Christ's churches, hear it, is not to any man, it's not to any angel, it's not to any pulpit. It's not, as one put it, to the credentials of the messenger, but to the content of the message. It's to the divine news of saving grace in Jesus Christ. We might say, it's to revelation. I don't mean the last book of the Bible. It's to revelation, what God has revealed in Scripture, revealed in Christ. It's to revelation and not to subsequent revelations. And so, dear ones, if an angel entered the sanctuary at this very moment, visibly, in awe-striking, heavenly glory, only to begin relaying to you, you must add to the work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. It's not a friendly angel. 
That angel is not a minister to the Savior's saints. That angel is actually a demon that needs to be put out of the assembly. Or, if say, a really great person has all kinds of uh, social media influence and followers and all this kind of jazz. They came to this assembly claiming angelic revelations as in so many cultic spinoffs of actual Christianity and said, Jesus is not God incarnate or that He's but a good example for us and we all need to follow that example. And by doing that, we need to climb the Tower of Babel into heaven by so many good works. There's nothing really to worry about because there's no hell. There's just multi-tiered heaven and we need to say our prayers and so many Hail Marys and evangelize so many and make sure that we're doing right and you'll make it. You hear that, and they say, an angel revealed that to me. It's your responsibility as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ to lean on the crucified and risen Jesus and tear that tower down. Or, let's say the old preacher that they called Golden Mouth, Chrysostom, was suddenly raised from the dead. Or, one of my favorites, Charles Spurgeon, who they call the Prince of Preachers. And they ascended to this spot right here in this assembly, and they began to articulate a gospel of do this and live. Do this and live, as Moses said. Even if it's in conjunction with faith in Christ, first, it would not be either one of those men. Because they would die a thousand times over before preaching heresy like that. And second, then, it should have no weight with your soul whatsoever. Or, you see in verse 8, how Paul even includes himself and the other Christians with him. So instructive. Men that we think to be the most faithful preachers can sadly change on a dime. The most ardent Christians in the world can sadly wander. Paul's saying to churches, that they had loved and seen to faith and raised in the gospel and discipled and cared after and pastored. He's saying to them, if we returned, if we returned and preached something different to you than the gospel that we preached to you at first, your allegiance cannot be, must not be, chiefly to us. This is so hard. Why? Because, at least I'd like to think, faithful pastors and useful preachers and exemplary saints can gain the affections of their congregations. 
relational roots have been put down and they're now solid and they're deep and there's trust there. They've been vital cogs in your life. You've shared laughs and tears. You've shared trials and joys. They've shepherded you through all kinds of stuff. You know? And this is where I say to you on behalf of George, but even if we at any time at 42 years old or 92 years old, after four years of pastoral ministry or 40 So I'm pastoring your grandbabies. If at any time I begin to preach a different gospel than the one gospel, it's this church's responsibility to warn me and to correct me and as needed, discipline me from the fellowship of the church. We're not to be excused. Well, see how much they've done. Recall all the good times. Look how big we are now. We're so big, he can't be bad. Folks are still flooding the aisles. He's just an old man. Leave him alone. Whatever it is. We're not to be trusted beyond reasonable doubt. We're not to be trusted beyond biblical gospel. We're not to have your allegiance over gospel truth. You are to rebuke me. You are to safeguard the gospel of grace. And you are to spare this church to the glory of Christ. It can't be a more serious matter. You must know the one essential gospel How according to the grace of God, Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that to do that, Jesus was perfectly obedient to God all the way to death on a cross. Which death He died for our sins. Satisfying that wrath of God That was against us. And he was then buried. And then three days later, God raised him up from the dead. Point being, from the very mouth of God, his work was sufficient to save everyone who believes. So the gospel is this greatest news of God's all-sufficient grace in Jesus received solely by faith in Him, which is also a gift of God to us. Christ is the sinner's salvation. Christ is our justification. Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our adoption. Christ is our regeneration. 
Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our glory. Christ is our boast. Christ is all of it. And if you get that wrong, it does not matter what you think you have right. What we think is right is not, is not, is not the measure of what is actually right and true and saving. There's a proverb about this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If you tarry right there without repentance, your end, Paul says, is a literal hell. That seems way too harsh. Says the world-bathed soul that's lost sight of the eternal stakes. So Paul, rightly feeling those stakes, says it two times in two verses for emphasis. If any being preaches a gospel to you that's different from God's gospel, let him be, you supply the word, accursed. Accursed. Anathema. Paul, how can you say that? Paul, how can you be so sure that your gospel is the gospel? Why should we listen to Paul? That was last week. And it's next week. Paul received his gospel from the risen Jesus. That's how and that's why. And in that, perhaps the stakes come into the clear again for you and me. There is only one gospel. There are not multiples. There isn't a, well, it's close enough. If you or I or any preach contrary to Jesus Christ, we eternally endanger souls. And a soul that does that is then itself eternally endangered. It's not to be thought that that soul is actually saved. In fact, insofar as it persists, the person is set to suffer forever what Jesus died to take away for all who believe. We'll see this in Galatians 3.13. But He died on the cross to take away the curse. Let Him be accursed. Galatians 3.13, Christ died on the cross to take away our curse. So, if by adding human works to divine justification, you cancel out the saving grace of Christ crucified and raised, you will receive none of that grace yourself, is what he's saying. Unless you repent. It's showing that you have not believed the truth that saves. Far from it, you're leading others into a lie that condemns. Needless to say then, Getting the gospel right is inexpressibly important. It's why, again, 
You need to be a meaningful member of a church where the biblical gospel is the final authority. Where the one gospel is centered, entrenched, safeguarded, sung, prayed. As you heard Jonathan, glorious. I almost thought I don't need to preach because he just prayed my sermon. Okay? He prayed the gospel. You get in a church that applies the gospel throughout its community. That is the surest way. It is the surest way to ensure your faithfulness to the gospel and the great author of it. Or I'll put it like this. It's the surest way to grow into a faithful steward of Christ's gospel rather than an accursed distorter of that gospel. If you look at verse 10, it seems the troublemakers were ignorantly ironic. They appear to be charging that Paul, in preaching the gospel of grace, in eclipsing Moses by Christ, Paul is a people pleaser. How does that work? Oh, he's trying to curry favor. Especially with non-Jewish people. Gentiles, like you and me. He's softening scriptural demands. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. What are we doing, Paul? You're softening all that? You're cheapening the gospel. Paul's gospel, his Torah-free gospel, all-grace gospel, is one that leads to licentious living. It's all grace. Licentious living. He's catering to sin. He's preaching for likes. He is no servant of God or of Christ. Which only shows what they do not know about the power of the cross, the activity of grace that leads us into holiness, and the gospel that Paul preaches. This verse, verse 10, is really a pivot in chapter 1. It shows what we need to have settled in our hearts if we're going to stay faithful to the one gospel. Paul is going to come to a point at the end of this letter, Galatians chapter 6, where he says this. He tells them, he says, Stop causing me trouble. Stop causing me trouble. You false teachers with your really fit bodies that haven't been beaten half to death. That's what he says. Y'all look real nice. Clean. You haven't suffered a lick. Stop causing me trouble about all this. I bear on my body the very marks of Jesus Christ. What's he getting at? He's getting at the fact that it's not his gospel that's playing to the pleasures, the approval of natural man. It's their non-gospel of flesh-based merits. 
No one in the world who is not a Christian has a problem with a works-based method of salvation. No one. And that is how you know it's not God's method of salvation. That's how you know it's not from above. Because you and I, human beings by nature, would never, never, ever have imagined or dreamt up a salvation that cancels out our lives and exalts grace alone. Not in a trillion ages. It just doesn't suit our insatiable desire for self-glory. Look what I have done. I am better than you. I'm going to get in. And too bad for you. I mean, goodness gracious, even these Christians, these Christians are having a hard time staying settled in the gospel of grace. But if you go out and you preach Christ and Him crucified, you leave behind your old manner of life and believing and all manner of people with it for this biblical beacon, brightest heaven of God's all-sufficient grace. Christ is enough for me. You better hold on tight. Because beatings of various kinds are coming for you. But as they do, your soul can smile all the way to glory. You are not pleasing man. You're not seeking their praise by believing the gospel. <laughs> You're not falling in line with ideologies that'll have their full fallen approval. If you were still trying to win all of that, what does Paul say at the end of our passage? You would not be a servant of Christ. So this is pivotal for gospel allegiance. It's pivotal for manning the walls. So I'll ask you, who and or what are you serving? What are you after? Because if your heart is after the admiration of people, if you're after their praise, their commendation, their approval, your heart will also be open to all kinds of Trojan horses. It will be open to false gospels. It will be open to altering the one gospel for multiplying the peoples and collecting their praise Oh man, as is so terribly prevalent, I think, in the churches today, we'll begin to doctor it up. We'll begin to doctor up the gospel. We'll smooth out its rough edges. We'll tailor it. We'll make it seamless and we'll make it sinless and we'll make it Christless until the gospel is lost entirely. And the people sitting under that kind of ministry 
who are like to be lost themselves because of it, will love that kind of gospel. No sin. No Christ. I love it. Tell me what I got to do. And they're just spreading the ashes of the old gospel of the all-sufficient Christ. And then dancing on top of it, applauding this new and improved message of self-salvation. And all the servants of Christ should hear that and just weep. But not without doubling down and reinforcing the wall. Servants of Christ realize we're neither author nor editor of God's saving message. We're simply stewards of it. We have a master, we're just managers. We're slaves to Christ. The word there for servant, slave. We're slaves to Christ. We're in bonds to Christ. I'm not going to divert from Christ. He's mine. I'm His. And joyfully so. Revelation over revelations. Message over messengers. God in Christ over man. As we'd be faithful to safeguard the gospel of God's all-sufficient grace in Jesus These are the allegiant rules that will hold us fast in holding His line. But now friend, what I want you to hear there, while we're building that wall and strengthening and reinforcing that wall, here's the line. What I want you to hear is that you can still enter in. There is a way. It's not by climbing the wall. (laughs) It's not by tearing it down. Okay? You don't have to fight to get in. Christ is the point of entry. You've heard the gospel this morning. You've heard it. Jesus has done all that needed doing to save a sinner like you. All that's left to you then is to trust His grace. Turn from your sins and believe, not in yourself, What a false gospel. Not in yourself, but in Him. And God will give you Christ's earnings. That's crazy. (laughs) He'll give you Christ's earnings. He will justify you, forgive you, count you righteous, adopt you, bring you into His family. He'll make you a new creature. And He'll give you Eternal peace and life with Him within the borders of His city. Church, it's on you to safeguard the gospel for us. What a privilege we have to serve Jesus the Christ. As needed, let's let the text reprove us. But let's also have it reestablish us as keepers of heaven's truth. Heaven's truth. 
and heaven's people and heaven's gate and heaven's glory. We are a bride that a certain prince from heaven stole away from the world. And the world doesn't like that. And so enemies are going to be at our wall. Trojan horses, they're going to be out there seeking a welcoming. And you and I, we're obliged then to know the one true gospel. Alas, we have a few more months in Galatians. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the truth that you have set within it. Let it be to us now a great light. Teach us yourself. Don't let our teaching stop with an amen. Let it continue to reverberate within our souls to reform us, to reprove us, to correct us, but also to rejoice us in the grace of Christ. Your glory is on the line. Souls are at stake. So please help us. Get glory for yourself as you give us grace to be faithful servants and stewards of the one gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.